Hi, it's Stan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Brad Roberts, best known as singer, guitar player, and songwriter for the iconic Canadian band, Crash Test Dummies. We'll be talking about music and travels and the business of music and songwriting and the life of a career entertainer. We'll get some other insights as well about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades now. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Brad. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm very well. How are you? Well, I'm doing okay. Many decades and, and retro music maker. How does that make you feel? old <laughs> <laughs> well we're getting, <laughs> i always ask people like is is age your friend or your enemy like for me it's definitely my friend i mean i've learned a lot of things and i'm i'm a happy guy so age is my friend yes age is my friend too and so far as i'm a happier person i think than i ever was Good. but but having said that i i don't relish the physical decline Yes. Slow though it may be. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sam Kinison said that years ago, this biological decay thing just isn't working for me. I don't really get it. <laughs> I remember laughing about that. I also like what he said about uh, Christ on the cross. Get me down! Yeah, right. <laughs> he, was, he would always yell his um, yell his punchlines, which was uh, yes. very funny. So you're another successful musician from Winnipeg. It's funny because I've interviewed quite a few people from Winnipeg and there's something in the water there. I mean, it's disproportional how many uh, good songs and good musicians came out of Winnipeg. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but uh, you're another one. Well, my theory is that um, Winnipeg is is so cold and isolated and alienating that people during the wintertime either retreat into hockey. If you're not a jock, like I'm not a jock, you retreat into a basement band. Right. And that's what I did. I, I was also very lucky in that I grew up in an era where my next door neighbors opened up a couple of the hippest cabarets and after hours clubs that had ever existed in Winnipeg, as far oh, as I know, at least yeah. in my time. The Spectrum Cabaret and the Blue Note Cafe, nice. owned by the Riddell Brothers. And, and um, because we were close, I was always playing at their venues. So there was a built in scene in Winnipeg kind of from the time I graduated from university. and until we got a record deal which is another cool thing i mean it was it was an exciting time for music and for bands and being in a band was a cool thing and there was i guess lots of venues more so than there are now i guess i don't know you mean because of covid well no i mean because of the the club scene you could play six nights a week there seemed to be live music everywhere every small town had three live bands on a friday saturday night I oh mean, that's just yes not- you're right you're yeah. right not so much no more more djs yeah so and and then uh you and i had similar paths you studied english literature and philosophy which i have degrees in both of those things and uh really enjoyed that and and i like the way you talk about how it affected your music because i always looked at it that way like like i didn't want to exclusively do music there was so much more in life i wanted to explore but you bring them all together in this big melting pot that makes you you well thank you Uh, you know it's funny because the only thing you can really do with English and philosophy degrees it, in practical terms is to become a teacher. And I didn't want to become a teacher, but I found out that in retrospect, I, I mean, I just took the courses because I really loved English literature and philosophy and I, I wanted to explore it. Mm-hmm. But when I graduated, I realized that the vocation of songwriting, which I was about to embark upon, was very much facilitated by having done a degree in poetry and philosophy because yes. of course you get to read all those great poets and all those great lyrics lyric poets which helps inform you know one's lyrical strategy and songwriting and of course the philosophy um you know just teaches you to think critically and that's just extremely helpful when it comes to writing songs at least i found that yeah, I I hundred percent agree. And and what I liked about English lit is that, you know, when when you take a specific class, if you take take biology or political science or whatever, you you study that discipline. With English lit, it was wide open. We, you could talk about anything. Every topic came up. Yes, very much so. I had the f- good fortune of having a couple of really good, really good, inspiring professors in English literature. Judith Kearns was one. She taught me first year English and got me sort of turned on enough to the subject that I decided that that was going to be one of my majors. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I had a similar experience with with a professor that uh, inspired me too. And then I just I followed it through because that's not what I started doing. And that's what I ask about uh, often. I ask people about their their musical career. I mean, obviously you've had a successful career, but did you have a plan? Like when you started out, if I'd asked you in in 1985, you know, what's your goal, Brad? What do, what do you want to do? Did you have a plan? No, I definitely didn't have a plan. I was quite happy to go to school and not think about it too much. I always wanted to play music, but I just didn't see that it was within my reach. Hmm. You know, I, I had just no idea what the path to a major label was. And at that time it was either that or, or sort of do it yourself, punk rock methods. And I wasn't savvy enough to get that going. Well, I kind of was, I got a, I made a, recording before we ever ever had a record deal it only came out on cassette though not vinyl right <laughs> um but um now now i forget what we were talking about so, so i just wanted to know if you had a plan like it like oh, did you have a defining yes. moment or a break where you said okay i can do this i can i can make a living at this yes i did have a couple of defining moments i remember i was living in montreal one summer during my uh university years and i went and saw Steve Earle play at uh, the Spectrum in Montreal. I say the Spectrum in Montreal because there used to be a Spectrum in Winnipeg as well that I just mentioned, so for clarity's sake. Yeah. In any case, he went up there and he played a great set and I loved it and I admired it. And don't get me wrong, I, I didn't um, have anything but respect for the guy. But I thought to myself, you know, I could do that. Yeah. I could write those songs. I could front that band. And at that time I was, um, well, Crash Just Dummies kind of evolved over time. We started off as a, just a novelty act that played cover songs. So when I saw Steve Earle, I thought, you know what? I want to switch gears. I want to start writing songs now. I'd rather be in a band doing original material. And um, that didn't go over well with everybody. And (laughs) some people quit and some people stayed on. And um, the people that stayed on, I think, were pretty happy they did. Well, of course. It, but when you first start out, you know, uh, it's funny. I think of the Stampeders story where there were six of them and then three of them quit and then the other three became stars. But you have to be in. You have to be all in and, and be ready to do the starvation tour and, and sacrifice what you have to sacrifice to get where you think you might want to go. Yes, exactly. Which, uh, which not everyone wants to do. No. So then when I, it's funny cause when I heard first heard of the crash test dummies, you know, when, when bare naked ladies came out, I thought, you know, there's a strange name for a band, but they wanted to get some attention. So they called themselves bare naked ladies. Right. And then I thought a very similar thing with crash test dummies. Cause I heard that this name of this band and I thought, well, that's brilliant. That's great. Because just the name itself kind of makes you chuckle and it kind of makes you look, okay, well, what, what the heck is this all about? So I thought it was the perfect name. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time people ask me, where'd you get the name? And the, and well, they don't have any opinion on it, but you're quite the opposite. So thank you. Yeah, no, I thought it was, I thought it was good because it was an attention grabber. And, and for you, you know, of course, having the baritone voice set you apart as well, because it just sounded different. So you had a different kind of name and then you had this, this baritone voice, which sounded different and, and part of the problem in the music business as you well know is trying to cut through i mean there's thousands of bands good lord like mm-hmm. i think the last stat i heard was sixty thousand songs a day are being uploaded to spotify i mean like it's just a shotgun blast of just a, a saturation point and you've yeah. got to cut through that and i ask a lot of people well how do you cut through that and and most of the time they say well i don't know and, and i don't know you, either I, yeah. I wouldn't know how to make it in the music business today because it's a completely different playing field than the one I was on. But the overriding challenge is still the same to try to cut through all of that yes, and somehow get great. people to notice you, right? And you know, in our case, um, my voice, as you mentioned, it is distinctive. And I frankly thought that it was useless for singing pop music. And when I first started writing songs, I was trying to get people that I thought could sing to sing them for me because I just didn't like my voice. It was too low. I mean, there was me and Nick Cave and Johnny Cash and Leonard (laughs) Cohen, and that was about it. And I didn't even, I, I didn't think that there was any hope in hell whatsoever that my voice would go over. And then ironically, when we released our record, People didn't talk about my guitar playing, which I'd worked on for 10 years. All they wanted to know about was where I got my voice. 
And I'm like, I yeah. just started, man. I did yeah. this by default. That's what but, I do. Well, the funny thing is when I, when I first heard Superman, like, uh, I just couldn't decide whether I liked it or not. I didn't dislike it, but it was so different. I just thought, do I like this? And then <laughs> listened to it again. And, and then it became a hit and everybody, you heard it everywhere. And I thought, I, I do. It's it's different. It's it's something that just it turns your head a little bit and go, okay, I get it. Well, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> I based I based that song on um, on Superman uh, and his escapades with a character called Solomon Grundy. And I remember when that song came out, all of these newspapers began to write these articles saying Superman never fought Solomon Grundy. This song was a charade. <laughs> And I couldn't believe it. I actually had yeah. to dig out my copy of this of the comic book that, by the way, Solomon Grundy scared the shit out of me when I was a little kid. I had to dig out the comic and and fax the cover and send it to newspapers to prove yeah. that in fact that's funny they had fought. And then, so I have to ask you about about singing low because I I, I sing all the time. I've done for forty years, and I, I do a Bob Seger tribute. And I'm all about singing high, like in, and even above what I, I'm not a natural tenor, but I I can sing high. So I thought if you have a low voice, it must be easier as far as you know when your voice doesn't feel great, you can still sing okay. Yeah, it depends a little bit. We used to do a lot of um of these morning shows when right. uh, I would wake up and be expected to sing it. You know, 7 a.m. And that, my friend, was not yes. easy to sing through regardless of how low and rumbly my voice was. Because even though your voice is low and rumbly in the morning sometimes, and it, it's not like you have a lot of control. Fair enough. And, and you, I, you do have a sharp you? edge to your voice too, even though it's a baritone note. You're not missing the top end. Oh, well, you thank know. you. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And I have to ask you about playing with your brother. It's because it, again, it's similar to me. I had my younger brother that played with me and you know, it was a family dynamic and I kind of had big brother syndrome a little bit. How was it like with you playing with your brother? Um, we get along very well in the band. I tend to, uh, let Dan write his own bass lines and I don't have much input on them. I like the way he plays and that's why I hired him. So I don't need to have much input on them. And so there isn't any kind of clashing or rivalry to speak of. Plus, my brother is just not the front person type. Playing the right, bass suits okay. his personality. So we both yeah. uh, have a role to play, and we seem to get along just fine. Okay, good. Well, I had to ask about that because I know I was kind of the, you know, the dominant older brother and I kind of steered the ship and, and, you know, was intense and sometimes even aggressive about it. And I, I look back and I think it was a spillover from childhood where that was the dynamic we had when we were kids nice. and we don't have it now, but yeah. yeah. Well, good. Well, appreciate it. I wanted to ask you about that. And then you got a record deal and, uh, you know, I wondered two things one was about how to classify your music and then the second thing was how you came up sort of amongst you know the other genres you were just getting the spillover of the 80s and the hair metal was was still out there but kind of fading and then the grunge was coming in and then there was you know blue rodeo and those kinds of bands i mean it was a real mix of everything right so how do you come up in all that and how do you characterize it or classify it well you know i didn't listen to a lot of other music to be honest when i started writing music um so i wasn't really aware of feeling like i had to carve out a special niche or or fit somehow into a pre-existing um, scene okay. i just wrote f f what i thought interested me and presumed that it was would interest other people <laughs> yeah. which is pretty presumptuous um, but no, I didn't, I, those factors did, however, work to our advantage. I mean, Superman song was a great big hit in Canada, but it got nowhere in America. And that was largely because there weren't any radio formats out there that were interested in playing that kind of music. Right. Um, but that all changed between our first record and our second record. And, um, this triple A radio format became popular. I forget what AAA stands for now. That's shameful of me. There's probably people listening that are going, oh, you dummy, it's blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Well, it's that, that adult, adult alternative, alternative kind of thing, right? Adult alternative something. Something like that, yeah. Um, anyways, that 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 radio format and, and those folks would play Nirvana as well. 
as us. Yeah. You know, I mean, basically that whole grunge scene opened the door to a lot of bands that weren't even necessarily grunge per se, but were just doing something that wasn't in the smack dab in the middle of the mainstream. Yeah, and that's a you make a good point because it, it it's been described as alternative, but and and from your perspective, I, I totally get what you're saying because a songwriter, I write songs that come from me. I don't know, I'm not I'm not chasing anything in particular, but the record companies they go, look, we got to cut it, wrap it, freeze it, give me something I can market. Is it alternative? Is it folk alternative? I don't know, call it something. Yes, well, I think that's what they called it, folk alternative. Yeah. And that made sense for Superman song. And our first record is kind of folksy. Um, but that was just our first record. And we moved on after that to a much different sound. Yeah. And then, and then obviously became even more mainstream uh, with the, mm, so then when you wrote the mm, song, I thought, okay, well, there you go. Let's just take something and just put a little, just tw- a little twist on it. So, so the fact that it's just a little bit different, it gets people's attention. It cuts through that mass of everybody and their dog trying to write. I mean, you know what happened after Nirvana came out? Good Lord, there was a f- complete flood of all that kind of sounding, similar sounding music. And our guys were flying to Seattle looking for the next Nirvana. Yeah. And you came up in, in between all that with uh, God Shuffle His Feet. Yes, indeed. And uh, interestingly, that record was panned in Canada hmm. and um, the, the song Mm-mm-mm was not played on the radio very much and uh, much music didn't want to play the video Wow! and everybody was just turned off. Everybody in the Canadian industry basically turned on us. It was bizarre. Yeah. Our yeah. own hometown newspaper published the most scathingly negative review of, of God schedule his feet on the day that it was released. And it seemed oh. like Canada, just the rest of the music industry just fell into place. Ouch. So for luckily for us, even though mm, didn't last on the charts more than a couple of weeks, um, it lasted on the charts for many months in America and went all the way to number two on the billboard charts. Yeah. So we were, we were literally chewed up and spat out by the Canadian music (laughs) industry and then had our careers revived by the American industry. And once we started doing well in America, all of a sudden Canada wanted to play crash test dummies, but they wouldn't play mm, 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 because they'd already decided that they'd flush that one down the toilet. So we actually stopped touring, went back to Canada shot a video for a different song and released that as a single in the Canadian territory only so yeah. that they could have something to play that wasn't. Mm-mm-mm. Well, that, that's curious to me too. I was going to ask you about the record deals and, and, you know, most Canadian bands want to break in the States and, and actually I learned a lot doing the research for this interview, but, um, I realized that, that you guys did have the break that, that most Canadian bands wanted and never got. We sure did. And, um, you know, it was a close call too, because like I say, we were failing in Canada, Yeah, but, uh, so, go ahead. So did you have a U.S. record deal and did you have somebody with some money down there? Cause like Ian Thomas and, and everybody that I've talked to has said, you got to have somebody pushing your band, writing checks and getting in everybody's face to make sure you get what oh, you need. Yeah. That was definitely the case. Um, what happened was we started getting airplay in Atlanta, Georgia, People started calling in and saying, who's that guy with that voice? And then record stores started calling the label and saying, we can't keep this record in stock. Um, Just in in Atlanta. And at that point, the president of Arista Records, Clive Davis, was like, I smell a hit. Let's plug this into the machine. And all of a sudden, we had the label on our side in a way that had never been on our side before. And we were being heavily pushed. Yeah. It was quite a ride, I'll tell you. Okay, well, that makes sense because I've heard the opposite story a few dozen times where, you know, they said, we got a U.S. deal, we're all excited, but the, the money just wasn't there and the pump wasn't there. They changed the A&R guy and we were dropped. Yeah, there's a million nightmare scenarios out yeah. there and we were very and, fortunate. Yeah, and the other thing with you guys is you did a ton of videos. I mean, and concept videos and mini movies. I mean, you must have spent a lot of money and a lot of time making videos. Well, we did spend a lot of time making videos. Um, Our budgets weren't all that huge, to be honest with you. Um, But we made a lot of them. 
and they were all conceived by our keyboard player, Ellen Reed. She came mm. up with the plots for almost all of them. Interesting. And never got paid a cent. The only piece people that got paid were the people that made the video. Interesting. Well, that's why I wondered about videos. I mean, you've got lots of, lots of videos where there's, you know, there's characters, there's, there's animation, there's, there's halls, there's people. I mean, you must've had some budget for that. And I just wondered if the record companies paid for it or if you paid it, I guess it's all recoupable money anyways, but you. It's all recoupable money. So they pay, they put up the money, but then they take it out of your sales. Yeah. But I mean, there was in the eighties, as, as you well know, and into the nineties, there was people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on videos. I mean, it got crazy. Oh God, not more than that. Yeah. Millions in some cases. Yeah. Crazy. So, but the, the videos were an important part of it. Right. And so every single worth its salt basically had to have an accompanying video and a decent one too. So I don't know how many videos do you think you did over the years? Oh, on our first record, we did three videos alone. No, four. And, um, on our next record, we did four more, I think. Yeah. There's quite a few out there. I did. I watched a whole bunch of them. So, and, uh, and they're pretty cool. I must say they're, oh, they're, they're concept videos. I mean, those are sort of by the by now. I don't know how many concept videos are made these days, but, uh, not as many. No, you're right. And then you, you did your third album. So, you know, I always ask about songwriting and stuff because it's, it's curious to me, bands sort of chase hit songs some bands do i mean some bands are you know i talked to jim balance i mean he's he's like a, a mercenary when it comes to writing songs right you just do what you got to do and write songs that are going to be palatable to the record company and to the marketplace and then other musicians are like you know i got to stay true to what i do like i'm not chasing hit songs i'm not going to write stuff that's just pablum to the people that i don't really internalize so but you've got a market you've got to deal with how did you balance that out um, well, the market always seemed to come to us and that's how I balanced okay. that out. I just wrote what I felt like writing and people were attracted to that music. Now that didn't necessarily happen on every single record we put out. Our third record didn't do very well at all, but, uh, I never really had to think about placating the fans because they seemed to be into what I was doing to begin with. Yeah. Well, so you talked about a worm's life, right? Which is a little, little heavier, a little different. Right? Yeah, uh, you got some different tones in there, but I mean, you sold over a million copies of that album, right? Yes, but after you sell five million copies of something, it doesn't mean nearly as much to the record label, and they right. see that as a failure. Yeah, well, that's I mean, Christopher Ward said that about Black Velvet and, and the problem they had, right? It was such a huge hit; it was almost a it's a blessing and a curse because. You know, any any band that could sell a million albums, would be, they'd crawl over a mile over broken glass to sell a million albums. Yes. Yet, <laughs> you sell a million, it's like, well, you know, the last one sold five. It's like, well, yeah, that's mm -hmm. still a success. It can't be considered a failure. And, you know, these are numbers now that um, refer to the 90s. But yes. back, back in the day, um, when you put out a record, it would not be out of the ordinary because studios were so expensive just for starters mm -hmm. would not be out of the ordinary to spend a million bucks on a record. Well, there's big, big budgets. I mean, it, that's the thing nowadays you could never do that. Right. I think that's, no. but uh, a friend of mine, he put out an album, you know, they had, they had uh, a big producer and, and they put out an album and their break even point was 500,000 records. This was in the mid nineties and they yeah, sold well, 50,000. We we made about a buck a record, and seeing as how they spent about a million bucks on us, we had to sell a million records before we saw a penny. Right. There you go. That's just how it works. So your break-even point becomes, I mean, for him it was 500000 but they near, they made 10% of that. They sold 50000 So you're not even close, right? Yeah. So, but the other thing for you guys that was a, that was a plus for your band is that you had some success beyond the Canadian border and in Europe as well. So you did well in the States and you had the, the billboard hit, but uh, you did well in Europe as well. How did that happen? You know, that seemed to be the result of us doing well in America. Okay. People paid attention and um, Europe often is an easier target once you've broken in America. Okay. I'd say the exception to that rule, at least at the time, was England, where they have their own market altogether, and it's a strange and fickle one. Hmm. But we managed to break there, too, so there you go. 
Yeah, well, that's that's uh, the goal for most Canadian bands, and I've talked to lots that haven't, but they want to go beyond the borders, you know, because if you don't, I mean, Canada's obviously a small market, 30 million would have been at the time, probably not even 40 million yet. Um, so if you can't really break in the U.S., it's kind of difficult to go back and forth across Canada two dozen times and, and try to make any kind of a living. Exactly. So good on you for breaking there. And and was there the same kind of promotion there? I'm always curious if you have to do the same thing in Europe that you do in the States, have a record exec that's a bit of a pit bull with a big checkbook. Yeah, I guess so. But, you know, I was not privy to a lot of the discussions that went on in by the time we got to Europe because I was so busy with everything else. Definitely, you know, people had to be won over and it just wasn't that hard to win them over when we were doing gangbusters in America. Yeah, no, cool. And then record deals, I guess, come and go, and, and you've been through uh, several of them. Did you ever get caught up in any of the legal crap with all that? Uh, no, I've been pretty lucky. I um, okay. When we got around to record four, our fourth record with BMG, um, the A&R guy there was driving me out of my mind. Okay. And, um, you know, he'd call up with things – to say about the songs that were absolutely ridiculous and made no sense. And it was extremely frustrating. And so I finally got to the point where I just didn't want to be on that label anymore on a major label. I was sick and tired of it. And so I asked to be released from my, from my contractual obligations and they released me. And then I went on and put out records under my own label after that. So your fourth album. Yeah, go ahead. Unfortunately, the minute that I, uh, quit BMG and started to go out on my own, Napster arrived on the scene. Ah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was impossible to make any money selling CDs. Right. So um, um, that that's when my career started to really go down the tubes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, the music business is a ride and you, you ride the crest of the wave and then, and then that's everybody's story, isn't it? Other yeah, than absolutely. a handful of people. And as a matter of fact, we have kind of a second wave going on now. There's the, all this sentimentality about the nineties and we've been able to go out and tour on the strength of, you know, the anniversary of those records and yeah. done really well. No, no that's great. Couldn't have like, you know, even 10 years ago. So the, the fourth album that you had mentioned, that was 99 and that was, uh, give yourself a hand. Is that the album you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yes. So that was, so you're at the end of the nineties there. So you're right. You make a good point about the turning point where, where Napster started to come in and CD sales, you know, uh, that boost in CD sales in the nineties was from the reissues. A lot of it was from the reissues of albums that were put on CD, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so when they say the CD sales went down, I mean, I rebought ZZ Top's Greatest Hits, Steely Dan's Greatest Hits, Super Tramp. You know, these are all considered CD sales, quote unquote, but they're just reissues. Yes. And, you know, record companies took a large percentage of our income based on the logic that um, they had to retool their factories for compact discs. And yet... That was just a huge moneymaker for them. Once they'd retooled, like you said, they re-released everything. And it was, a fortune gold, off of it was that. a gold mine for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there they are trying to stick it to us for that. So you, at the end of the 90s, got out of your record deal and, and went out on your own. And did you have the rights to all those tunes? Did you own the master tapes? Did you control oh, uh, those? DMG owns the masters. That That's part of the record deal. That's part of yeah. any major deal. So, they own so, the you, masters. so you get residuals, you get uh, the royalties and that's it. Yes. And then your own stuff, when you released it, you're now you're past the sort of the crest and, and you're just, uh, just a band putting out songs and hoping that people relate to them. And yes, more or less. We have, I haven't even put out any records in 10 years. The most recent thing that we put out was a song, uh, Sacred Alphabet. one at a time, yep. Sacred Alphabet. Yeah. Which yep. I'm quite proud of. Yeah. Nice. And, and so, but I was about the, uh, the records, like what did you have a, when you went on your own, did you have a distribution deal? Like how do you get the product to the people? It depended on from record by record. At first I tried to get distribution deals, but then it became increasingly obvious that nobody was buying discs anymore anyways. Right. Okay. So I just switched over to, um, streaming platforms. I gotcha. And that's where we're, that's where we're available now for the most part. 
Yeah. Except for the well, merch that we sell at our shows. Yeah, right. And so so by playing live and selling merch and then getting some streaming revenue plus the residuals you get from the past, that's you got four income streams, I would guess, just from from those four things. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's about right. Yeah, because that's um, and then you guys took a couple of breaks too. Like the the band took a couple of long breaks, and you had an accident, I guess, that set you back a little bit. Tell me about that. Um, I was driving down a back road in Nova Scotia all by myself, and um, I took a curve too fast. I had mm. I was in a an old Cadillac, and I had, I had no idea that they didn't like turns, uh. and I made the turn at at too high a speed. I wasn't even speeding, but it was too fast for the car and it flipped. Oh, and, um, I sur- I survived by a miracle. As a matter of fact, I was out in the middle of nowhere and it just so happened that somebody a mile down the road who happened to be a paramedic thought he heard a car wreck. No oh. one else had. He said he just heard a little sound above the sound of the TV. So he went out to see what was going on, and he found me there trying to get out of my car. My arm was broken, and it was at a funny angle, Jeez. and I was uh, I was pretty screwed. And yeah. he came up, and he said, uh, anybody else in the car? And I said, no. And he said, well, boy, she's going to blow. Yeah. And I was oh, like, wow. okay. So he helped me out of the car, got me onto the meridian of the highway, and that car blew up. Wow. Like something out of the Dukes of Hazard. It was Jeez, unbelievable. Man. Wow. And I, and I narrowly avoided losing my life. Very touching. Boy, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That Was that like a, a life-defining moment? Did you reflect on things pretty heavily after that? No, you know, I, I just knew I'd made a stupid mistake. And I did not go down the road of, oh, my God, I could have died. Yeah. I, I just didn't. And I don't know why. And how long was your recovery time? Oh, quite a few months for my arm to heal. But I, I mean, given the, the nature of the accident, it was such a terrible wreck. I was very, very lucky to walk away with just a broken arm. Yeah. yeah and I sure. was very lucky, too, to have thought to myself, as I got in the car, and I still remember thinking it, eh, do you need to wear your seatbelt? It's such a beautiful day. Uh, maybe you should. And I put it on. And huh. If I hadn't, I would have smacked my head so hard in front of that, on that thing that I never would have got out of the car. Yeah. It's funny for, uh, you know, we're, we're similar in age, but you know, back in the day in the seventies, we drove around with no seatbelts lots of times, right? It was just yeah. one of those things. And then when the seatbelts came in, there were still guys that refused to wear them. Yes. They just wouldn't wear them. And I thought, well, that's kind of stupid. I mean, you're better off if you stick with the car. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no so, kidding. Uh, well, good. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that. I'm glad that you were, uh, that you were okay. I mean, sometimes it, it plays on people's heads when they get into those kind of traumatic, you know, they have this post-traumatic stress, dis- you know, disorder that develops from having a, a severe thing like that, that they yeah. need to work through, right? Because it can play I with your head a bit. I to drive afterwards. I just didn't have any of that. No. Okay. Well, good. And then you're living in New York now. Why, why is that? Like I often ask Canadian bands if they considered moving to the States and trying to make it in that market. And some of them do, and some of them don't, but, uh, you ended up in New York. How did that happen? Um, there's a number of reasons that I ended up in New York. One is that I always just loved New York. Um, even on television, I would watch David Letterman. They'd pan across that skyline at the beginning of the show. And I was just like, yep. Oh, I want to go there. <laughs> And when I finally did get there, it did not disappoint. And I fell in love with the city and I, cool. and I just wanted to live there. Okay. So I put down, uh, I, well, I didn't put down roots. I rented a place. And then eventually I met who the woman that has become my wife now of 25 years. Nice. And, um, she was living in New York and not about to move to Canada. So that pretty much sealed my fate here in New York city. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, cool. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the place to be for business too, I guess. It, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to, you know, explore the U S market and, and be in a, in a sort of place where things are happening, you're, you're there. Yeah. Well, I take advantage of other things in the city. I don't do a lot of business hustling and schmoozing. I, <laughs> I leave that to my booking agent and my manager. Um, but I do take advantage of the fact that I live in New York and I've I've taken up classical piano and 
classical music theory. And I have a couple nice. of teachers that I never would have had had I not lived in New York that have been uh, profoundly influential on how I view music and how I write music. Well, good. Well, that's, I often ask some of my guests and, you know, I, I get varying answers to this, but I ask, ask them sometimes like, are you happy? You know, like, like you have to sacrifice certain things to, to get to the level that you're at, but then some people are, are happy about it and other people not so much, you know, like the sacrifices are a lot. So are you, are you happy? I'm definitely happy. Yeah. And I don't feel like I have to make many sacrifices anymore. I yeah. put in a lot of time when I was young in the business and I'm now in a position where I can more or less sit back and relax between tours write music as I see fit and put it out maybe a song at a time rather than having to be under the pressure to make a, an entire record. And right. so I, I kind of feel like I've made my way to a place that I'm very comfortable in. Good. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that because it, there's been a, a number of times where, where people have sacrificed so much, maybe family or having kids or relationships. I mean, some guys have been married a half a dozen times or, or whatever, just life, you know, you're pursuing what you think you want to pursue, but your life, you know, sort of takes a back seat. And then in the end you kind of, and I've asked a couple people, was it worth it? And, and a couple times I got the answer. No, it wasn't worth it because huh. my kids don't talk to me. And, and my first wife, I've had three since then and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's the music business draws you into that, right? Yeah. Because you're married to I'm your job. I'm surprised that people have been that candid with you. That's uh, quite interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, to me, the, the music is great and people's successes and the accolades you get and everything, that's all fine. But the, 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 the audience goes away and then you go home and look in the mirror. And, yeah. and that's really where life happens, not, not on the stage. The stage is kind of an artificial environment in a sense, right? Oh, absolutely. It's completely constructed from the word go. Yeah. And they go home to their families and their lives. Yeah, and you go home to a hotel room. Right. Or uh, <laughs> or your broken relationship or your wife calls you. I mean, I, I couldn't handle touring. I did it a couple times and it just would have, you know, I wouldn't be married to my wife if I'd have kept on that road because I was married to my job and I would have just been gone all the time. Yeah. And when you're gone nine months out of 12, you, you just, that's, it's, that's it. You're married to your job at that point. Yeah, exactly. So and you were doing that, huh? Well, I did for one year. But I realized, I thought, is this the path I want? And then this was in 89. And I just came home and I said, I, I just can't live this life. I mean, I'm a pretty upbeat guy, but the most down I ever was, was sitting in a hotel room, you know, and we had a mid-level band. We weren't making a ton of money. We were just kind of trying to pay our dues and get somewhere. And I thought, what, what am I doing here? Like, what am I trying to achieve? Because yeah. this ain't it, you know? So... I admire you guys who went in the studio and, and at least you realized if, if you can get a song that does something for you, then your reputation and your music precedes you and you have some kind of a standing when you go there, at least you have a chance. When, when you're just a band, you have no chance. You got to win people over every time. Yes. So that was a bit more challenging. So tell me about your, your new release, Sacred Al Alphabet. Now you, you recorded that in New York? Um, that got recorded in a number of locations. I okay. did do the uh, basic tracks in New York, which is to say the vocal and the piano. Right. We did that um, live. Yeah. And then um, I took that recording and I sent it to the various members of Crash Systems, who, by the way, are scattered around Canada. <laughs> yeah, some in Nova go. Scotia, some in Ontario, some in Manitoba. I'm in New York. That's funny. So I just said, listen, take a listen to this song and add what you feel makes sense. Yeah. And everybody did that. And then everybody sent me back all of their stuff and I went through it and picked and chose what I liked and thought worked and, and then uh, mixed it in New York. And yeah. it's the first time I've ever done a recording that way. It's interesting. It became very common during COVID. Yes. Yeah. So, and I was curious about that, like, like the direction of your songwriting. I mean, that, that's more like a, it almost like a Gregorian chant in a sense. It's very, uh, I, I don't want to say morose in a negative way, but it's, it's very reflective and deep and mood, uh, evoking, I guess is what you'd say. Well, I would take that as a big compliment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote that after having studied counterpoint for a couple of years and counterpoint is a method of writing where you 
you juggle several melodies at one time rather than just writing one melody and then having it supported by uh, the rest of the instrumentation. Yeah. And um, so when I wrote the piano part, I wrote it in, in that style. And I think it, it gave it kind of a spooky atmosphere that I was going for. So I'm, yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that you had the response that you did because that's what I was shooting for. Yeah, no, and that and it evokes that sort of reflective feeling for sure. And but I was curious about your songwriting past now because you know I, years ago I heard um, KC from KC and the Sunshine Band talking about songs, and he goes, "We just wanted feel good music, man. We just wanted a good beat and a good song, and make everybody happy and dance and stuff." And I thought, okay, that's cool because he certainly achieved that. Mm-hmm. But other songwriters have different focus and so what's your when when you go to write songs like if you write the next song you write what's that going to be about or what's it going to be like it's going to be a companion piece to sacred alphabet as a matter of fact and i'm working on it now yeah (laughs) i have the lyrics completed but i'm having a hard time with the music and uh yeah my process has changed ever since i started taking composition lessons a few years ago i've been i've been writing songs on piano not on guitar and um I've often been writing chords previous to the melody, which is something that I didn't used to do. I used to kind of write them at the same time. Um, So things have changed for me in terms of the way I approach writing. I was kind of getting bored with the old stuff. Hmm. You start to get tired of your own ideas, you know? Well, I guess. I mean, I've I've said that a lot. I've heard myself saying lots of times, I'm I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) you know because you but uh, but i'm just wondering about the commercial aspect of it like like what's your focus is to write something using counterpoint or using the new new tools that you have or the new creative tools that you have or what's your what's your aspiration commercially well my the, the reason that we recorded a new song is because you can only tour on the strength of an anniversary tour for so long because the anniversary ends and mm. in order to stay relevant, it made sense to put out some new material. That way we have, you know, uh, something new in our live set. Mm. And we also had a lot of fans saying, please put out something new. Please put out something new. Yeah, so, and it's been a long time, as you said earlier. It's been 10 years, right? You, yeah, more than 10 years. I more think. than 10, yeah. So, um, so it was a long time coming, and I, I really enjoyed the process. <laughs> Well, that's good to hear. And you've got, you speaking of tour dates, you have tour dates coming up, right? You did a bunch of shows last year and you got some more coming up. I see on your, on your uh, website. Yes, we do. We'll be touring in May around, uh, the East coast in America. And, um, we'll be doing some Canadian shows in the summer. And then we're doing a big Christmas tour at the end of the year from November to December that'll cross Canada from one coast to the next. Nice. Yeah. Do you uh, do you still like touring? Did you like traveling and touring a lot? You did lots of it in the past, right? You know, I don't mind it so much now, but in the past, I've I found it very difficult when we first started doing it, mainly because I was the lead singer and I was yeah. called upon to do all of the press, and that meant that while everybody else was, you know, going out and sightseeing, I was in some studio somewhere the toll it takes too. the talking, then you're singing, then you get your rest and then you go and do the show that night and then you're off to somewhere else. Yes. It is kind of a grind after a while. And um, now that I don't have to do as much press, it's just so much easier. The pace is so much more forgiving and I can get some sleep and yeah. Cool. Well, good. Well, that's meals. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, as we get older, you know, we talk about age being your friend or your enemy. It's your friend in the sense that you got more discretion over your own time and you've, and the pressure is not as high. So you can kind of chill a bit more, right? Which is kind of what you need to do. Yeah, exactly. So looking back in your career, is there anything that you would change that any, any decisions that you made or, or anything you'd do differently looking back from, Um, from where you are now? Well, you know, there are a few things that, that didn't go as well as I would have liked, but I don't know if I would go back and change every anything because the way things worked out worked out so well that if had I changed the things that I might have wanted to change, maybe we wouldn't have ended up with the success that we had. I don't know. Well, I guess, but when you asked to be released from your record deal, was that, you still stand by that decision? Were you happy about that? Oh yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. No, I didn't want anything to do with them anymore. Fair enough. And then were you ever taken advantage of, mistreated? Um, no, not really. Not I mean, good. yes and no. For example, you know, we used to have to audit the record company and pay an auditor $40,000 and they come up with hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're, that are owed to you. It's incredible. Yeah. The way the record companies do their bookkeeping is totally skewed. And, and I'm, I'm sure I've been ripped off many times, but um, well, that's yeah. just the way it is in the business. Generally. It's an exploitative business by nature, yeah. by books like the Hitman and stuff. I mean, there, there's lots of companies that had two sets of books. Yeah, I read that book when it came out. That was around the time I was uh, starting to get famous. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And our, our a... record company president was in that book. He figured so oh, largely. Yeah. Clive Davis. It's a dirty business. It is. You know, it's, uh, I just wondered if you were overtly, because I mean, back, it's a little bit before our time, but I mean, back in the 60s and well into the 70s, some of those bands just got literally bent over at the waist and, and just got shafted so badly it's it's shocking actually yeah it really is it took a while for musicians to sort of catch on to the fact that they needed to have lawyers because companies have lawyers yeah well and and john fogarty in his book he's he signed away songs he hadn't even written he promised the record company saul's ants 160 songs jesus christ I, and i'm like are you kidding me you sign away songs you haven't even written yet because I always wondered, well, why can't you just write new ones and just carry on? He said, I couldn't even do that. And he said, by the time the CCR was finished, he had, he had given them 37 songs. So he said, I wasn't even a quarter of the way to what they'd already signed me to. Can you imagine that? Yeah. No, he has a, he has a tragic story. Oh yeah. And he finally got them. He finally won after 50 years, but, uh, but that couldn't even happen now, thankfully. Yeah. I uh, just, so a couple other quick questions, if you're okay. Sure. Um, some of the biggest acts you've worked with, anybody that's really stood out to you? Like, who do you look up to? I've always been a big fan of a band called XTC. Right. They're not super widely known, but they're very widely known amongst musicians. So I would say that they definitely affected the way I write songs. Um, you know, and when I when I was a kid, my musical heroes were quite varied. Uh I wasn't very discriminating. I just kind of liked everything. I wasn't cool at all. <laughs> I, well, I bought those uh, KTEL 22 Greatest Hits records absolutely. all the time. Yeah. Canadian oh, yeah. Mint and all that stuff. Do you remember those? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I do a show called the KTEL Classics. And I sing oh, really? Of, oh, yeah. Tie Yellow Ribbon and Last Song by Edward Bear and I, all those tunes. AM Gold. Yeah. Swamp water had to live back in the swamp where the spring <laughs> green reptiles grow. Isn't that from uh, that Joe Stafford song? Uh, oh, uh, spiders, spiders and snakes. Don't lack spiders and snakes. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, we lived at the best time because we had such eclectic. You know, you listen to James Taylor, you listen to Led Zeppelin, then you listen to the Who, and then you listen to Cat Stevens, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody in between. And who cares? Yeah, and those. Those KTEL records were just culminate, you know, just collections of the hits that the biggest hits that year. But, oh, yeah. there, but there was always a a wide variety of sound on them. You're right. Yeah. No. Oh, and and lots of that stuff was really really good because KTEL records. Maybe you can tell me. Um, did they start in Winnipeg? You know, the, apparently the guy that started that lives out on the West Coast now, and I tried to get a hold of him, but I don't know if he's alive anymore, and I can't remember his name. But somebody told me that one time that oh, I live in Vancouver, just outside of Vancouver, and somebody said, well, that guy that started KTEL Records, he lives in White Rock. Huh. And I was like, oh, I got to explore that a little bit more. So I sent him a message, and he never got back to me, so I don't know. Mm. But uh, it could have been, it, it could have been, but it was a great idea because it was the, the way to buy a single or a, a greatest hits album back then without buying a whole album for one song. Yes. And, and you know what they thing. did to pack 22 songs on there? Oh, look at that. I just looked it up. Wikipedia. KTEL is based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. There you go. <laughs> it's been, been in business since the 1960s. Very cool. Interesting. Yep. Uh, Philip Keeves was the founder. I there you go. Was the guy that you were trying to find. But, Interesting. Um, but I interrupted you. What were we saying? 
Oh no, just about the the, the classic songs of the seventies and the the KTEL or the AM oh, Gold and how yes, important it was. I was going to tell you that the reason that they can fit twenty two songs on one record was because they edited the, the hell out of them. Okay. They um, took out guitar solos. They they faded the end really quick. They maybe take out whatever they could take out. They did to get the right. song, you know, under three minutes. Right. And um, that way they could have 11 tracks on each side, which was unheard of then. Yes. The way they used to sell their records was with this line, 22 greatest hits with <laughs> yeah. 22 greatest stars. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. right. I never thought of that. You make a good point, though, because you never would get an album with 11 songs on one side or even 10. It would be four or five, typically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's interesting. No, those are great though. And I often reminisce about that when I do my 70s shows, how important AM radio was back then. And people would wait to hear the latest new songs on AM radio. And and the world is different now. I mean, I, I ask people, most of my guests, I, I used to ask them, how's the music business changed over the last 50 years? And they usually just laugh. <laughs> so. Because it's a whole different universe, right? How has it changed for you, and, and and what have you got going on now? How do you how do you go into that sort of morass of uh, just the, the, that saturated business and find your way through that? Yeah, well, we're very fortunate in that we already carved out our name. Yeah, so we don't have to do anything to be heard above the noise. We've got a loyal following, and when we play, they come out and see us, and when nice. we put out music, they buy it. Yeah, yeah, good. And uh, you've got, you're still writing songs, you said, and playing guitar and playing piano and uh, recording stuff. So you're still active? I still am active. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when we finish this interview, I'm going to try and do a little writing on that companion piece I was telling you about. Oh, good. Well, very cool. And so what's the next uh, sort of one, five, ten years look like for you? (laughs) Keep touring? Well, uh, the next five years, I would say keep touring and keep writing songs. Okay. I don't know about 10. Yeah. By the time 10 years has rolled by, I'll be nearly 70 years old. There you go. I want to do it then. Well, you know, it, having the options, that's, that's again, the, the yeah. whole point. If, if you feel like doing it and you can go out and do it, then, uh, you know, go do it. Exactly. Many thanks to Brad Roberts for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music business. More information is available at crashtestdummies.com. Excellent website, really uh, full of lots of great content and the tour dates are on there and there's samples and lots of good stuff. So check it out. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear the music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show, like the Crash Test Dummies. So until next time, I'm Dan Hare.